Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is William McCaskill. William is an associate professor at the University of Oxford and so much more. So, William, pretend we just met. What else do you do besides being an associate professor? I'm uh, one of the progenitors of what's called the effective altruism movement, which is a community of people who are trying to use evidence and careful reasoning to try and do as much good as they can. And that can come in a variety of forms. So many people choose to give at least 10% of their income to whatever charities the evidence suggests uh, is the very most effective. Other people choose to go into career paths where they'll have the biggest impact they can. So a combination of what's the most important problem and where's the area where they'll have the best fit. And I recently watched one of the video lectures that you delivered. Um, it was a video for me. It was an in-person conference series. And I heard you introduced as one of the progenitors of, uh, and I think being introduced as one of the progenitors is the ultimate power move. So I, uh, I love that title. <laughs> no, I'm no, seriously, I, I, I love that title. I think that's super cool. You know, I'm a sci-fi nerd, so I just thought that that was, uh, yeah, incredibly cool. Effective altruism is my scion. Maybe I can move to that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So are you originally from the UK or where'd you grow up? I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland. Okay. So I'm from a small town in Maryland in uh, America. So small town, I think my graduating class had around, 
120 people, maybe. Was your town small you grew up in, or how big is Glasgow for people that don't know? Uh, yeah, no, I grew up in Glasgow, which is a kind of post-industrial town. It's about 750,000 people. So big by the lights of the UK, small by the lights of the US. And I just grew up in the suburbs in a middle-class family. And growing up, you know, I did always want to do good with my life. Um, I worked at an old folks home. I volunteered for a scout troop for kids with disabilities. Um, but it was only once I really started thinking about things as a postgraduate that I thought, well, of all the things I could be doing, what are the most effective ways to spend my time or my money? Do you think that the experience in the nursing home or working in a group or a scout troop, do you feel like that was really important for you? Uh, I think it's important in terms of my own character development. I think when you're a young person and you're doing volunteering or work like that, I think it's not you know, selfish or egoistic to think about this as like developing yourself as a person. Getting feedback where you're able to see the kind of beneficiaries of your action and appreciate and come face to face with some of the problems and the issues in the world and carry that with you, even if what you end up doing is then something that's maybe very necessary, but somewhat far removed from where the action is, like being an accountant for a nonprofit or something. Sure. I think those early formative experiences can be very important there. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the, uh, the whole idea of character development has been, it used to be in vogue in the United States, but I would say as a cultural phenomena or something to aspire to, like having a great character or serving others, I would say that it's gone out of style a bit in the US. There are a lot of people that pay lip service to it or pay Twitter service to it, but it doesn't often translate to good in the real world. So you're, you've seen many different initiatives and people who have gone way beyond rhetoric and are now doing things in the real world for good. Are there any favorite examples or favorite uh, groups or projects that are getting you really excited about effective altruism, about doing good in the world? Uh, yeah, there are so many. And uh, one of the things that's been so great about being so involved in effective altruism is getting to meet so many amazing people running so many amazing projects. And effective altruism has three main cause areas, kind of areas where we think you can have a really unusually large impact. And so one is global health and development. And within that, an organization called Against Malaria Foundation mm -hmm. that distributes bed nets and has you know, scaled up massively to now take hundreds of millions of dollars and save you know, tens of thousands of lives by doing this. And it's extremely simple, very highly evidence-backed intervention. And the leader of that is absolutely fantastic too. Uh, second kind of cause area is for, um, improving the welfare of animals in factory farms. The reason being there's you know, 50 billion animals slaughtered every year for food. The vast majority of them live lives of horrific suffering in factory farms. And Mercy for Animals is one organization that has been extremely effective in reducing the amount that hens are brought up in caged conditions, which are you know, of all the kind of cruel things that happen in factory farms, hens being brought up in very tightly net cages, often you know, sometimes pecking each other to death, being debeaked and so on, is really among the worst. And what they've done is go to major retailers, that's like McDonald's or Walmart, and say, we want you to stop using K-10s and you supply eggs from K-10s and your supply chain. And remarkably, have been extremely effective. All 50 of the biggest buyers of cage tens have made commitments to no longer use them. 
And oh, wow. The kind of benefit costs ratio there is like absolutely insane. It's, um, you know, 200 chickens that you're, whose lives you're improving with every dollar you spend <laughs> on these campaigns. It's like really huge. That's so exciting. And I think from the outside, a lot of us can think of whether the large organizations in the Fortune 500 or Fortune 100, sometimes we think these people might not be receptive. But what I found as our business starts to work with enterprise, there are a lot of rational and highly empathetic people that are running these corporations. Often they just haven't been presented with an option or a way to do good. Do you feel that we just need to present these opportunities in a better light or just getting in front of these people and presenting them is the key to moving the debate or you know, getting this change happening that you're talking about here? Do we just need more in-person conversations or uh, what are you finding out there as you do your work? Yeah, I think that can often be the case. You know, I think that there can be stereotypes of say, oh, it's like the CEO of McDonald's. Of course, they're going to be some ruthless capitalist and will have right. like absolutely no concern for anything. But, you know, people come in as a spectrum of personality types and all shapes and sizes, basically sure. everywhere you go. And yeah, one thing we have found with these corporate KHC campaigns is that for many people, even CEOs of big companies, when they're just presented with information about like, look, this is just really what it's like. This is how chickens are treated in these factory farms. Often they're like, wow, I really just didn't know that. And I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to make a change. You don't need to do any more convincing for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in this case of animal welfare in particular, if you just actually ask people or just look at people's natural reactions to animal suffering, if they see a kind of bird that has, you know, broken its wing, um, often people will just like impulsively, like look after this bird and mm -hmm. nurture it back. And yet at the same time, then we'll eat chicken from a factory <laughs> farm. And the only way of kind of being able to reconcile that is just not really knowing, you know, people perhaps it's the sort of thing that people like to believe, but people will think, well, yeah, there's just maybe conditions are actually pretty good in these farms and really right. they're not. And it's been, there's this, this huge amount of suffering that's been shielded from most people in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, I, d I definitely agree. And there's an old saying that never attribute to malice what can be attributed to ignorance. And it's so true here where we're all, I'm very, very ignorant of things that are going on, even in my local community that could be fixed today. And I need that information if I'm going to do anything to solve it. So um, that's a great reminder. In a talk I listened to you give, you mentioned that it's tempting to double down on successes. And as a movement, as a community, you are going to help ensure that the group kind of kept exploring and looking for new opportunities instead of getting complacent and just doubling down on what is working. Could you tell us what you meant by that and what areas are you exploring now? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, effective altruism, as I was saying, as well as you know, has these kind of three classic cause areas, global health and development, animal welfare. And the third, which I'll just tell you about briefly, is the area of kind of global catastrophic risks, events that like a man-made pandemic or extreme climate change or the nuclear war or um, advanced artificial intelligence gone wrong, things that often kind of aren't here right now, but will be here in the coming decades and could be extremely bad or good for humanity, to ensure that they go well, maximize the benefits while minimizing the risks. And these are the kind of three classic areas of effective altruism. But the idea of effective altruism is just to figure out how, how you can do the most good, whatever format that takes, and then try and do that. And so even though we currently have these three focus areas, 
you know, it'd be very arrogant for us to think, oh yeah, we've just figured everything out. So instead, I think we should constantly be thinking what are the ways in which we maybe could be doing, you know, finding opportunities that are even better. And one thing I've been pretty interested in recently is just improving political decision-making, where this is a cause area that, you know, impacts a very large number of other causes. And one organization I've been championing in this area is the Center for Election Science, which is based in uh, Boston, I think. And it's campaigning for more people to use a form of voting called approval voting. Now, this is about the simplest change you can make, because normally when we vote, we just vote for one candidate, and that's it. This is, you can just vote for as many candidates as you like. Hmm. And what I really love about this is that it's this incredibly simple change to how we do things. But the mathematical properties of approval voting versus first past the post, which we currently use, are just radically different. Because at the moment, you can have a large field of candidates where, you know, let's say uh, the 2016 Republican primaries, for example, you've got a large number of very similar candidates and one quite different candidate. I'll let you fill in who, who I might be talking about. I, I'm drawing a blank here. I don't know. A blank. And what you get is vote split between all the very similar candidates. And so even if 90% of people don't want the um, extreme candidate, but there are more than nine candidates that the votes are being split between, well, perhaps the extreme candidate kind of still wins. And that's just a very bad problem for democracy. It means that actually the voting system we currently use is just this very bad instrument at representing the will of the people. And so right. there's this one incredibly simple change that if widely adopted would, I think, very significantly improve um, democratic decision-making. And that would be good for the whole variety of, of reasons. Is that process being implemented anywhere? Are you doing any type of uh, experiments with it right now? Yeah, so there was a ballot initiative in Fargo, North Dakota last year, and Fargo became the first public uh, body to implement hmm. approval voting. And the Center for Election Science are going to run this out on a number of other uh, municipalities and I think one um, county level as well. And then hopefully as they get more and more wins, that can increase to the state level, perhaps also presidential primaries as well, and you know, maybe even to other countries. And it's really the sort of thing, you know, if you're in a group of friends deciding where to go out for dinner, you can use approval voting um, <laughs> for all the candidates you like, uh, similarly in boardrooms as well. I think it's just one of these very simple innovations that could really transform a number of sectors of society. So from a linguistic standpoint, it sounds like approval voting is closer to it seems to be a bit like improv almost in a sense where it's never just no, it's yes and. It's yes and. You always want to just keep the momentum rolling. So uh, I like that because politics has kind of turned into a bit of a, you know, a spectacle, um, a bit of uh, yeah, spectacle over substance. So that's, that's really exciting. Let's go back to something you mentioned there about being in a group of friends. So, so let's say now you're going to hang out with your friends on a Friday or Saturday night and the group of friends that you're hanging out with has no idea about EA. How would you, William, go about bringing this up very subtly? Are you just going to, you know, slap a copy of Nick Bostrom's Global Catastrophic Risks on the coffee table, or are you going to maybe just like bring it up, you know, subtly? How do you go about introducing people to the movement? Uh, yeah, I mean, historically, I've always, you know, there's two kind of broad approaches you can take, uh, which sometimes get called the the obligation framing and the excitement framing. Hmm. The obligation framing 
would be something like, do you want a beer? And I'd say, no, buying a beer is a model because that three pounds <laughs> could go to buying dead nets, which would you know, help stop a child from dying of malaria. Um, and maybe that's true. You know, maybe that's just sure. like, you know, there's a model thing we're doing. <clears throat> maybe there are situations though where it's, it's appropriate. So for sure, I'll, I'll keep that one in the back, the ace up my sleeve in case I really need it. Yeah, so it could be, but I think as a matter of fact, I'm about doing things effectively. I think that's a very ineffective way of actually changing people's minds. An alternative is, hey, I just listened to this podcast and there was these set of ideas that um, I found really compelling and really actually quite exciting and that I've started acting on myself. And so I started donating to this organization and like, here's this like amazing solution and like why it's good and why it's interesting. Let me tell you about that in a way that is you know, does not make the person feel like they're kind of under attack or there's anything mm. kind of expected of them. But instead, it's just demonstrating through your own action that, hey, there's this actually really exciting way to live, which is like living up to your own values, which involves making actions that can actually have this like huge impact. And I think like most people just ultimately do want to do that. Most people care about other people. They would like to have lived their lives in a way that leaves the world in a significantly better place than they started. And if that's presented in this positive, exciting way, I think people often get caught up in that and uh, want to do the same. I agree. I think a lot of people are waiting to have these conversations with other people. They're in their head. They're thinking, I want to be doing something much more impactful for my life, but they just need opportunities to kind of join in in an ongoing conversation in front of them. So as you go about your work at Oxford and other places, what is most exciting that you're working on right now? It could be a paper, it could be a conference that's coming up. What is occupying the majority of your uh, mental space right now? Uh, Yeah, so I think the thing that's occupying most of my mental space at the moment is a set of predictions about how we expect the next 100 years to go. So in particular, there are these arguments that we're going to develop very advanced artificial intelligence and, you know, artificial intelligence that's just as smart as you and I and just able to do as such a wide variety of tasks as you and I. You and, I. and that's going to be basically the hugest thing ever mm-hmm. for the human race. And so what we really ought to be doing is trying to ensure that that transition goes well. Right. It's a first contact in a sense that's going to happen. That's right. Yeah. And so I feel intuitively is skeptical of some of these arguments i think they're like good enough that we should actually be taking just as a matter of best practice as a society i think we should be being very careful about how we're developing this technology Um, and that's also true for all very powerful technologies but then there are some particular predictions such as that you know once we develop human level artificial you know as we're going to develop human level artificial intelligence in the next couple of decades and then at that point kind of economic growth is just going to explode and suddenly the world economy will be doubling in a matter of months rather than mm-hmm. the kind of 20 that it currently takes. And like I say, I'm kind, of, I have, I'm kind of torn between, on the one hand, finding some of these arguments very powerful. On the other hand, they're just not fitting with my model of like how the world works, how I expect things to actually go. And so while I expect AI to be like a very huge deal, I don't maybe expect it to be like as huge a deal as some of the people I'm kind of interacting with. But at the same time, it's just a really compelling argument. And if I think there's, you know, this utterly transformative event coming in 
the next few decades, well, it's, it's hard to think about anything else. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but how do you feel about, if you are familiar and want to comment on it, how do you feel about OpenAI recently transitioning from being a nonprofit to being a for-profit with earnings for investors capped at 100x? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense as a, a business model. I have, you know, for an organization, I really don't care if it's a nonprofit or if it's a for-profit. What I care about is just how much good is it doing? How much impact is it having? To be honest, I was amazed that OpenAI was able to get to the size it was right. as a nonprofit previously. I mean, this is one of the things that I have found h- hardest in the nonprofits that I've set up is it's just very hard to get you know, very rapid growth as a nonprofit. I think finding deep technical talent and being able to work with them for a long time is, is a huge challenge. Um, have you found the same for 80,000 hours and others? Yes. I mean, you definitely have an issue that even, you know, we are now moving progressively to, like we started off paying extremely low salaries and we were very small, but we were able to get people who were just like really, really passionate about the cause. But often, you know, quite young people as well, people who don't sure. have a family and so on. And we have moved to starting pay, to paying what are now pretty reasonable salaries, by the, at least by the nonprofit world. But it's still the case that like compared to for-profits, you just it's very hard to compete. And then if you do have people who have, you know, health commitments, um, family commitments, it can be harder to get talent. Uh, we, at least, on the other hand, there's just a lot of people who are really excited about effective altruism who, for whom this is just their dream job sure. and they're not so bothered by money. So we're able to, like, ride off that a lot. But I think as a, as a general matter, the fact that there's such strong norms against paying people reasonable salaries in the nonprofit world, I think just ultimately harms the nonprofit world, even though there are people who are abusing that. Definitely. I, I agree that, that the, the abuse of the system, especially in America and around DC and the Beltway where I used to live is rampant. However, it does not mean that there are organizations that are doing great work. Do you feel like there's a role for government to step in and maybe create some extra tax write-offs for people that work at nonprofits? Or is there a way for government to help subsidize technical talent that wants to work at a nonprofit? I mean, governments already do subsidize it insofar as they subsidize the donations. Tax write-off and donations, um, yeah. uh, So they could go further with that. I mean, I think that the the way governments currently do subsidies for or tax write-offs for donations is very strange because there's just one category where the U.S. Golf Association is a nonprofit and it gets a tax write-off as does Against Malaria Foundation. And right. I think within nonprofits, there's you know, a large discrepancy in the sorts of organizations that you know, the government should be like, trying to incentivize through what is effectively a subsidy. And for that reason, maybe there could be tiers where some things are kind of extra subsidized, some things that are nonprofits at the moment are not subsidized. I think in terms of nonprofits paying their staff more, that seems to be more like a kind of cultural issue where donors are often unhappy mm-hmm. if um, profits are paying their staff too much. And let's shift gears a little bit here to talk about intellectual heroes. So I'm uh, in heroines, I should add, but when you're doing research or when you're doing reading, are there any authors or philosophers that you continue to revisit? I don't know, maybe you're a fan of Carlyle or Bostrom or you know whoever the case is. Who are your intellectual heroes? Yeah, my biggest intellectual heroes, so Peter Singer is certainly one, and that's not a surprise. He 
was the person who first convinced me through his writing to become vegetarian and then to start donating uh, my income and so on. And I do return to his work. I read his book, Animal Liberation, um, actually for the first time, um, just last year. And, you know, it really holds up very well. <laughs> Even 50 years later, um, I just think wow. it's this exceptionally well-written piece of, like, ethical treaties. And just reading it, it's just, it's so true, it's so correct. And then you mentioned Nick Bostrom. He's certainly another example, just kind of indefinitely full of insights and ideas and has like an entire vision and way of looking at the world that's like starkly original, I think. And then finally, as a philosopher, Derek Parfit, um, who passed away recently, um, his book, Reasons and Persons, mm. one of the most innovative works of philosophy in the last hundred years, in my view, and continues to prove yeah, very influential for me. And I would love to get your take too on, are there any electronic mediums or new formats for content and information that you're particularly excited about? Are you bullish on, say, podcasts, streaming video, digital written content? Is there VR, AR? Are there any of these that you're particularly excited about? Or do you think that books are still going to be the gold standard for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I'm super bullish on podcasts and uh, 80,000 hours. That's the right hours. answer, by the way. Yeah. Well, there's a reason I'm on one. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and 80,000 hours, which is the nonprofit that focuses on career choice. We have a podcast just called 80,000 Excellent, podcast. by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, yes. And it does just really in-depth interviews with experts, like two hours, three hours long on these topics we've been talking about. And firstly, it's just a way of being able to absorb content in a much easier format than reading, which is you know, quite an active thing. Podcasts, you can be passive. You can also just do it anytime. But then also just as something I've learned in being in academia, there's a huge amount of knowledge that's contained in the academic establishment that is totally inaccessible to outsiders because it never appears in journals where a journal article is, or a book, they always have to have a, take a certain form. They have a particular idea, a particular methodology. But there's just a lot that scientists know and believe that's useful information that you wouldn't get through this process. So for example, there's been these issues in psychology where many studies don't replicate. And it turns out if you just ask scientists, do you think this study will replicate? They're pretty good at being able to tell you yes or no. <laughs> And so in addition to just the kind of research output that academics have, there's just a kind of wisdom that comes along with that as well, kind of mm -hmm. understanding of how their field works. And podcasts really allow you to tap into that. So yeah, my view would be, you know, I'd be in favor of a hundred times as many podcasts, especially kind of very in-depth ones. Do you feel like academia has a obligation to step up and offer more tenured positions for professors? Or do you feel like there are enough professors and academics. Do you feel like there should be more? Or is this a non-issue right now? And there are uh, higher priorities. Extremely broken. One of the main things that I would want to change is, at the moment, almost all jobs are joint teaching and research jobs. And it's a very weird setup. So I was on one of those positions, which is just kind of one of the very standard academic positions. Um, and I got zero hours of, most of my time was being spent teaching and I got zero hours of training on teaching. And what's more, any of my career advancement 
was entirely based around my research rather than teaching. So I was incentivized to do the minimum I possibly could. Sure. Um, and that's just a terrible situation. So it's terrible for teaching because it means you've not got, you've got people who don't really want to be teachers doing the mm. teaching, who've never done any training. And it's ter terrible for the search as well because, you know, as the example of Derek Parfit shows, he's one of the few exceptions who never had a teaching role. He was entirely in the search positions. The search is something where you get kind of increasing returns and just more hours that you're putting into it. And it's very easy if you have other commitments to kind of get distracted from that. So I would be pretty strongly in favor of there being a more of a division between academics who are, who are teachers, who are lecturers, which is super important, mm -hmm. and then people who are researchers as a, as a separate thing. And then similarly on the researcher's side, cutting down the amount of time that they have to spend applying for grants and other things that are kind of taking them away from their kind of main work. That's the kind of first things that I'd want to do rather than just before, even before kind of increasing it, you know, say the amount of funding or the number of people going into these areas. Sure. And so this is a bit weird question. So feel free to uh, take it however you wish or you don't have to answer. But Oxford is, I think, over a thousand years old now or close to it. Uh, yes, I think it's 800 years old. Gotcha. They're, they're, com they're coming up on... Uh, a thousand years here pretty quickly. And that's, that's super impressive. Do you feel like we need more institutions that are old like this? Because the only outside of Oxford, the oldest institutions typically are nation states and then brewers and distillers of spirits. That's the next one. <laughs> I, I feel like we need a world where there are institutions that last for multiple generations. And you know, a thousand years. I think, I feel like that's a good thing. Do you think that's a good thing? And do we need more institutions like this that survive? Yeah. A couple, I mean, a couple of other examples um, would be religions, probably sure. the oldest. Right, right. And I don't know if they count as an institution, but cities are also very, um, extremely long lasting. Right, right. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest cities today are somewhat correlated with the biggest cities 2000 years ago. And I think I'm going to say no, honestly, I think the reason Oxford, the primary reason that Oxford is you know, a top university is because it has this age, because it has this reputation, but that's kind of like being a monopoly. It's like, you've got this network effect, you've got this huge barrier to competition. And to be honest, that's why it seems to me that there's so little innovation in the educate higher education sector at the moment and in the way that universities operate is because Oxford, you know, and Cambridge and Harvard and so on, they can just do kind of whatever they want and people are still going to go. Um, people are still going to want to get jobs there because the brand and the network is just so, so powerful. And, you know, I don't have any good solutions to that, but I think if it were the case that that network effect weren't as important, I think probably more progress would get made in higher education. Hmm. And are there any alternatives or supplements to higher education that you're particularly excited about right now? I know, you know, Lambda School has been in the news a lot recently, and there are a number of other programs like this. Anything particular you're excited about? Again, I think more of this is going to go via podcasts. In terms of education in the broad sense of the word, of people actually trying to have an enriched life by understanding many, of dif many different things, mm -hmm. um, informal things like podcasts, and even TED, for all the critics it gets, um, actually, I think has been extremely powerful here as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think they're going to be more important than these kind of alternative online universities where I think the issue with them is just that it's not really clear what a kind of 
undergraduate degree itself is for. Sure. It's not really vocational training. Is it like a chance for a bunch of young people to get together and party for a few years? Um, is it, you know, is it learning how to learn or something? And I think these things can be uh, separated and we'll see, you know, products that may be catering to each of these rather than something that looks kind of like a university degree, but um, in an online form. And so we talked about character development at the beginning of the interview. And then recently you meant, mentioned that you were doing quite a bit of teaching for a while. How did teaching impact your character development? And are there any of the biggest lessons learned from teaching students that you can share with us? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, one of the things I think it taught me the most actually was a certain amount of self-compassion. So in Oxford, you're a tutor where as well as giving lectures, you give tutorials, which are one-on-two, you know, teaching sessions. And so you develop quite close relationships with the students. And especially for the first years arriving in Oxford, they are stressed out their minds. <laughs> and it really takes a significant toll on them in terms of mental health. And, you know, being therefore able, and you end up taking a bit of a pastoral role, helping guide students through that and trying to reassure them. And me doing that and just seeing how, you know, stressed out these students could get about something that now looks to me kind of trivial, like, mm -hmm. do you get a good degree or a very good degree from Oxford? <laughs> Doesn't really seem like the biggest thing, actually, in the grand scheme of things. Actually made me appreciate that I'm like that in all sorts of ways, too. And <laughs> if I'm providing this kind of compassionate advice, well, maybe I should apply that back to myself. So that's kind of one of some more emotional level. As a practical thing, when I, I read through the kind of literature on effective teaching, and one of the most important things, and I think this applies to life, is just having very rapid feedback. Mm -hmm. So the way to not run a tutorial is to just lecture at the students about all the things that you think they don't know over the course of an hour. Instead, what you want to do is perhaps you explain something and then you ask, like, what do you understand? What didn't you understand? Was that a helpful way of explaining it? Was it not? And so you're engaged in this cooperative exercise where you're constantly kind of error checking the other person so that you constantly know exactly what level the student's at, what they are understanding and what they aren't. And similarly, you're learning all the time. What are you explaining well as a tutor? What are you failing to explain? And I think that applies you know, across the board, it certainly applies in management, in work. I think it applies in relationships to being willing to have like a very low bar for just kind of expressing where you're at, what things are going well, what things are going badly, and in a way that's non-evaluative. So this right. feedback is not saying I am judging you or I am rating you as a person or a student in doing this. It's just a way of kind of communicating where you're at, what you would most benefit from help with. Sure. And you mentioned something really interesting there, which is about stress and being overwhelmed with things. And so during my time in the military, one of the things I noticed was that if you go through a period of extreme stress, what happens after that, assuming you're healthy going into it and you're psychologically, emotionally well-balanced and everything, when you go into that stress, you come out the other end, assuming too that you have an adequate time for recovery, you come out much, much stronger. And when I left the military and joined the business world and came to Silicon Valley, it's uh, nothing stressful here. A lot of people are acting as if they're stressed out, but it's just a, it's a very first world problem. I feel like many people are afraid of enduring long periods of stress now. 
Is this a recent trend? Is this something that's hardwired in our biology? What are your thoughts on stress? Because I view it as something that's wonderful. It's going to lead you to grow. It's going to lead you to everything you want. Obviously, you want to be careful with it. You don't want to descend into chaos or you know push it too far. But what are your views on stress? Yeah, so it's interesting you say that about the army. I have had an idea that I haven't followed up on yet of uh, what I call anti-holidays, which uh, is rather than going away for a week and having a really nice time on a beach somewhere, you go away and have a horrible time. Yes. Spend for the remaining uh, 50 weeks of the year. Sound, they're great. Yeah, you just really appreciate so it. So it's, really, it's, it, it's really interesting you bring this up because when I left active duty, there's a period of being in the reserves where you have one weekend a month, you have a drill, and then two weeks out of the year, you have another drill. They're absolutely horrible. They're just, they're maddening because you can't, there's so much you can't control, but then you leave them. And when you go home, the rest of the month is wonderful. So sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. I want to hear, hear about this. This is something I'm very, very interested in. Uh, yeah, but it's, I mean, so yeah, it's something I might try. I mean, it's something I definitely used to do much more as a, you know, teenager growing up. I was, I did a lot of, uh, expeditions and adventures and played a lot of rugby often in freezing cold conditions and so on and often i hated all of it but uh i do think it just improves the quality of the rest of your life i feel like too any type of confidence that you feel like you had before it's always going to be amplified on the other end and yeah I, i feel like it's a confidence too that doesn't descend into arrogance it's a a much healthier confidence so do you feel like students are shying away from stress more or let's expand that and say like, do you feel like Western adults are shying away from stress more or where do you feel like we're at in the UK and the US? Yeah, I think it's hard to tell in terms of trends and certainly not something kind of I really know very much about. But the, I mean, the way it seems to me with respect to stress is just that we're we're very much not designed from an evolutionary perspective for the sorts of lives we live, right. where we get very little sunlight, we're in very large groups where we don't know, like most of the like other people. We're often like forced to do things where you might get social censure. You're having to make just you know thousands of times more decisions than you would um, sure. in the kind of life we evolved for. And those slow, chronic, small stresses are the ones that are sometimes the most debilitating, right? They're just like these annoyances and these dogs that are lip- nipping at your heels that ne- it feels like they n- almost never go away. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I think, I think there's a bit of a clash where we think, wow, well, we've got it so good it's because of all of these indicators, you know, I mean, and in many ways we do. We've, sure. I can travel wherever I want in the world. I have like amazing healthcare and so on. But there's just is just this clash between like the way of modern life and what we're actually designed to do in terms of, you know, making us happy. And yeah, I think like maybe if we can try and create more institutions that that try and compensate for some of that, like perhaps the working day should involve like a three hour break in the middle of it so we can actually get sunlight. And perhaps during that time, you could then uh, do like intense physical activity, sports with like close friends sure. and so on. And you'd be starting to live a life that's like a little bit more attuned with the sorts of things that, you know, make life more fulfilling. Yeah, definitely. And so you're the author of a book, Doing Good Better. How did that experience happen of writing a book? And what did you learn from that? Because I feel like writing a book is a, it's a monumentous task. And when you finish it, when you publish it, you typically discover things about yourself that you didn't know before you started writing it. So 
What did you learn about yourself? And can you tell us about the book? Uh, yeah, so the book is Guides to Effective Altruism. As the name suggests, it's about trying to, through your charity or your career choice, um, trying to give you actionable advice and ways of thinking in order to help you have a bigger impact with your life. And writing the book was interesting for me and for a number of reasons. For one, it was just fascinating getting to know the world of publishing, which I also think is kind of, <laughs> I talked about how academia is broken. I think publishing is pretty broken too. Um, Completely agree. The most interesting thing was um, the idea of promise keeping has just broken down because there's so many authors who say, oh, well, I'll have my, uh, the book will be ready by August. And just sure. people have failed to keep promises so many times that you can no longer make a credible promise. I feel like the publishers have reacted pretty aggressively to that, right? With how onerous many book contracts are from the big four or big five publishers. A lot of the authors, they have to do all of the work, all of the marketing. And uh, do you feel like that's a reaction? Sorry, this is a tangent, but do you feel like that's a reaction to authors missing so many deadlines and not delivering on what they're supposed to do? I mean, I'd say that's more of a reaction to the fact that it's a a dying industry. It's losing... Mm -hmm. Is losing money every year, so they need to start cutting down costs. Good point. And yeah. There also just seems to be a general trend of like passing small costs of, like away from companies onto individuals. Um, uh, yes. like, you know, like airlines get you to do more things yourself at stores. It's like self-checkout now and so on. It's um, everywhere. I think, everywhere. I think there must be some deep behavioral economics reason for this. But anyway, that's all a tangent. <laughs> Uh, it's a very important one. Let's let's just call it that because like planned obsolescence and planned whatever you want to call it, we need a new word to refer to this because I noticed this at every single store, just about every single establishment. Um, now when you order things through, whether it's like Uber or Amazon, you're asked to pay the person's tip. And it's, yeah, it's pretty confusing. Uh, I'm all about tipping, all about being a generous tipper, but I'd also like to see these companies helping out with compensating these people what they're worth. I don't want to be... <laughs> I don't want to be subsidizing it because I'm subsidizing quite a few other things at the moment. Um, well, this definitely relates to the small stresses of daily life. It's like, yes. uh, <laughs> now you can't just take a taxi somewhere. You also have to just like figure out what's a fair wage for uh, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, the people, the person who's taking you there. Uh, and so, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, it was a huge task. It was very enjoyable for me getting to learn just how to write well for a different sort of audience. So I spent a lot of time because this was, you know, explicitly a book aimed at kind of general public in a certain vein. I spent a bunch of time kind of analyzing popular science books, Malcolm Gladwell and The Tipping Point and uh, Free Economics and others. And it was actually amazing doing so, like how often the kind of same tropes are used. So, you know, you always start with a story. and then The same the studies. Uh, um, yeah. The broader lesson. Often you kind of drop in some little clue or idea early on that's left hanging. So this, you, the leader has like an open hook that makes them want to keep going more. And so, yeah, learning about that, I actually found fascinating and yeah, enjoyed greatly as well. And then the process of writing, again, I think writing itself is one of these things that, you know, some people are just machines and able to produce huge amounts of content, just it flows out of them. I'm definitely not one of those people, but it definitely taught me just the value of momentum. So just you know, if you aim to write just when you feel like writing, you're never going to produce anything. Whereas if you just have a habit, it's like, well, no matter what I do, I write for two hours every day. 
And that's sure. a lot, it seems like a really low bar. You've got 24 hours in a day, but you know, have some really low bar, but ensure you do it every single day, even if you feel like pretty bad. Then you end up in the long run, like getting quite a lot done. So certainly from my perspective, it felt like I was just procrastinating, staring <laughs> at the ceiling, wasting every single day. And then I would submit something to the publisher and they'd be like, wow, you've made such good progress. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of that, great progress. Was there a specific section of the book or chapter or piece that you were most proud of where you feel like you had a breakthrough or where you felt like I'm onto something here? I'm starting to feel much better about my writing. This feels really good. Uh, yeah, I think the thing I was happiest with is the second chapter, You Are the 1%, because it just, and in that chapter, what I show is. Basically, anyone reading the book, certainly a middle-class member of an affluent country like the US or the UK, earning you know, typical in- income, you know, plausibly you're in the richest 1%, certainly you're in the richest 2 or 3% of the yeah. world's population. And that even includes the fact that money goes so much further overseas, mm-hmm. even taking into account that fact, adjusting for it. And in fact, you're 100 times richer than the poorest 700 million people in the world. So wow. if you took, you know, if you halved your salary, you could double the salary of 100 people. And then if you look at literature from economics, both happiness economics and traditional economics, you can use that work to show what that means to see that a doubling of income is always worth about the same in terms of happiness. So it's as good to go from $30,000 a year to $60,000 a year as it is to go from $1,000 a year to $2,000 a year in, mm. in terms of the improvement of happiness you get. And putting that all together, it means that simply by taking some of the money that you earn and giving it to the very poorest people instead, you're doing a hundred times as much in terms of producing happiness for the world. So it's kind of like rather than the buy one, get one free or something, it's like buy one, get 99 free. So the reason I was kind of happy with that chapter was I think I just, I did manage to present well in a clear way and in a way that hadn't really been stated in this form before, what I regard as just one of the most important facts about the world today, which is this really mind-blowing discrepancy in income between us and the rich and the poorest people in the world, and at the same time, how that really cashes out in terms of translation between that money and the amount of well-being or happiness you get from it. All right. So a a pro tip, an embarrassing story for the audience. Um, if you are really excited about that stat, which I am as well, and you hear your friends or acquaintances complaining about the amount of money they make and you remind them in an obligatory sense, like we were talking about earlier, uh, they're not going to react well. So I, I'm, uh, I've been really guilty of this in the past when you know, I, just, I hear somebody complaining about making 180000 and $250,000 a year. And I bring this stuff up. I can't, I, I can't stop it. My wife will uh, try to censor me if we're at like a dinner party or something like that. But it's just, it really irks me hearing people complaining about making $250,000 a year. And is there any example or advice you have for bringing this up? Uh, I, I know you just gave us one example of how to bring up and subtly remind people that, hey, you're in the 1%. You are the 1% that you're complaining about. Are there any tips you have for bringing this up in a uh, gentler, more exciting way for people? Yeah, I mean, I think this one is particularly tough because, you know, the implications of it are so clear. And so it's naturally going to make people so 
uncomfortable. Again, the kind of advice I would give is just leading with yourself. So saying like, hey, well, I you know, discovered this amazing fact about myself that- Right, I love this. Even right. though I earn, yeah, you know, I earn like, <clears throat> I definitely don't earn $250,000 a year, but I'm still in the richest, you know, 2% of the world's population. This is great because we're getting ready to go to dinner tonight. So yeah, there's going to be a, a group of folks. So this is, this is awesome. I feel better and more relieved already. Okay. Okay. Nice. Um, uh, but yeah, if they're all um, such high honors, definitely mention effective altruism. All right. I will bring it up through through the example that we just talked about. All right. Yeah. And you saved my wife a bunch of future embarrassment. So this is this is great. <laughs> um, so when it comes to life outside of work, what are you doing for fun? How do you recharge? Are you uh, able to take any time off? And if so, what are you doing? Great. Yeah. Um, I've certainly I've started taking quite a bit more time off the last couple of years than I did in the past. And I kind of moved from going just kind of all out, how can I work literally as much as possible to appreciating that, okay, this is now my life for another, you know, hopefully 40 years, 50 years of work. So sure. let's try and figure out something that's a bit more sustainable. And so, uh, yeah, I now do um, a few things. So I go traveling a fair bit. So I went to India and Sri Lanka for three weeks. Um, over Christmas. I've started getting into making music again. So I play the saxophone. Oh, um, cool. I picked up a couple of drums. I have like this hippie steel tongue drum, um, <laughs> which, yeah, I've been really getting into as well. It's awesome. Um, and then, yeah, I do a lot of running, gym. I heard you on another episode really lauding squats and deadlifts. So I'll, uh, They're the best. The market price for the chemicals that you're able to endogenously promote and trigger through these exercises would be astronomical. Like it would cost you so much to purchase the human growth hormone and testosterone that your body's going to naturally produce with these exercises that it's almost criminal not to do them. Yeah. Well, I also, yeah, I learned the hard way, the importance of doing the right gym exercises where I really developed very bad back pain for a Uh, number of years. And that was just, I was, I was neglecting the Sure. exercises like squats and deadlifts. And, uh, and it's counterintuitive, right? Because when you have a hurt back or when you have a hurt knee, it feels like you shouldn't do these exercises. And oh, for yeah, everyone no, listening, you should, yeah. You, yeah, for everyone listening, you know, check with your medical professional, all that good stuff. But in Iraq, I had a hurt knee. I started squatting heavier, fixed, good to go. In Egypt, I suffered another, on a, on a deployment, I suffered another uh, minor injury. And through lifting heavier, I was able to recover from it. And you hate, it's something you hate, hate at the time. It feels ridiculous. It feels like masochistic, but then you get through it and you get better as long as you're doing it in an intelligent way. So side note, but yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, getting exercise, you mentioned the marketplace just, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like I've read a lot on personal productivity, how to get the, do the most on a wide variety of dimensions. And I think like a lot of the best advice is like sleep well, Mm. exercise well socialize <laughs> yes um, and it's really like oh and eat healthily eat, eat a lot of plants it's so simple but it's so so powerful when yeah, you start doing exactly. all of them and again it kind of relates to like this fact that within this weird situation there's something like you know we evolved for it's pretty hard to force yourself to act in kind of unnatural ways Right. Whereas there's certain things that, you know, we're not getting as much of as we ought to, like sleep and decent amounts of exercise and just compensating for that, which is by far the biggest kind of productivity boosts you can get. 
I agree. So Alan Kay has that famous quote that point of view is worth 80 IQ points. And I feel like all the activities we just mentioned are worth at least 10, you know, maybe, maybe more. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, awesome advice. William, this has been a lot of fun to talk with you. Is there any final thought, thought experiment or call to action that you would leave our listeners with? Uh, yeah, I think the, the key thought is just that, you know, you have 80,000 working hours in your life. You've got however much money you're going to earn over the course of your life. Middle class people that ends up being in the millions of dollars when you add it all up. You have this single but huge opportunity to make this tremendous difference in the world. And even if you just use some significant proportion of your time, your money, 10%, but really try and dedicate it to the most effective uses of time, uh, most effective uses of money, you can have just an absolutely tremendous difference and you can significantly improve the lives of thousands or even tens of thousands of others. Awesome advice. William, thank you for joining us. We'll have to have you back soon. And everyone out there, check out the 80,000 hour podcast and where else can they find you? Also, you can look at uh, effectivealtruism.org for much more information and we talked a bunch about the giving what we can pledge that's at givingwhatwecan.org awesome love it and for everyone listening we will see you next time Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org we own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning our clients include companies like Salesforce they're a customer times five Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.